I want to tell you a, a deaf little story to start with. There was a, once a woman who um, was quite eager to get married, and so she'd been uh, dating online, and she'd found a man who she thought uh, was the right man for her, and was uh, quite keen at meeting, her, uh, meeting him. And uh, she was trying to explain to her mother, um, uh, this is the first day I'm going to go and meet him. And her mother's obviously got questions. What's he like? Is he really any good? Are you sure you're not rushing into this relationship a bit too quickly? Um, I mean, uh, does he have any money even? Do you know, do, does he work? Is he, is he rich? Uh, and the woman says, oh, yes, certainly. Certainly he's, he's very rich. He's a, he's a chef. He's got his own restaurant. Um, really quite successful. It, it must be. It must be rich if he's got that sort of job. Um, and well, where does he live? Do you, do you even know anything about him? Asks her mother. Um, and and the, the lady says, well, uh, yeah, he's told me a, a little bit about where he lives. I mean, uh, he lives in a a nice uh, little a little house in um, in the middle of acres of countryside, he says. Um, so I assume it must be a nice place that he's used his earnings to, to get for himself. And, and the woman says, well, how will you know that he's coming when, when he comes to meet you? Um, do you know what car he drives or anything? And the woman says, oh, yeah, he's got a, a little classic two-seater sports car. And uh, so there'll be no problem identifying him in the car park. Anyway, the woman goes off and uh, goes to the arranged place to meet him. And the man turns up. And she's quite disappointed. The, uh, the classic two-seater sports car is actually a beaten up old banger that is actually so old that you no longer have to pay uh, tax on the thing. And it's only got two seats by virtue of the, the three rear seats being flattened to fit his dogs in the back. Uh, she finds out he's not really uh, a chef with his own restaurant in the usual sense. He just works. He's got his own burger van in a lay-by on the, on the side of the M6. Uh, and his little place in the middle of the countryside is actually just a caravan that he sits uh, on a farm out on the outskirts of town. Uh, the woman had built up this idea of the man that she was hoping to marry. And then when she eventually meets him, uh, she finds that all her dreams have fallen flat. He's nothing like what she hoped him to be. I start with that silly story because I want to ask you a more serious question. What would be the result if we make a God of our own design? What would be the result if we make a God of our own design? For the woman, when she made a husband of her own design and chose to believe what she liked out of what the man had told her, uh, things went quite drastically bad for her. He was much worse than he imagined. Uh, I would hope that when we meet the real God, the, the one true God, he would not be much worse than we've imagined, but far greater than we've imagined. But still, the situation might not be uh, all that pleasurable or exciting. If we've been worshipping a God of our own design rather than the one true God, well, even in this life, we might find that this that God is not responding in the way that we expect God to respond in times of trouble or in times of difficulty. The things that we're praying to him to ask for, he's just not giving them. It could be really quite a test to our faith. And certainly uh, at the day of judgment, how will this God respond if for all of our lives we've been actually worshipping some other God, some God of our own design rather than the God as he has revealed himself to be? What would what would heaven really be? Uh, Would it be the same as what we hope it to be? that we've built it up to be. And what would be worse than hearing those words from the lips of Jesus away from me? I never knew you. To make a God of our own design is far more serious than just an inconsequential mistake. It's uh, much more serious than that. Today, we're going to be looking at the second commandment. Um, You find the commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, You might have a look at them, but we won't be spending too long in the text there. 
Um, but I'll just read the commandment so we know where we're up to. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The first commandment we take as this, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment that we're considering today, we take as this, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. What I want to show you is that the second commandment is not just a picky little preference. Uh, God prefers us to worship one way rather than another. But actually, the second commandment is a vital necessity to ensuring that we don't fall into the trap of making a God of our own design, of worshipping a false God altogether. The second commandment is a necessity if we're going to be able to keep the first command. Now, that brings me on to my first point. What actually is the difference between the first command and the second? The first command is you shall have no other gods. And then the second command is you shall not have any idols. Now, if you were here last week when Joseph was speaking, when he was speaking about you shall have no other gods, quite often he would use the word idols. And he would describe how the heart is like a a factory of idols. And there's no end to the number of idols that we can uh, invent for ourselves. And in that way, he was using the word idol basically as a synonym for God. Idol as a false god. Is that what's going on here? Uh, Number one, you shall not have no other gods. Number two, you shall not make an idol. Well, if that was what was going on, then the two commandments would be a repeat of one another. So what is the difference between the first command and the second commandment? What you've got to realize is that we can use the word idol in a number of different ways. Sometimes we or the Bible uses the word idol to mean another God, a false God. And that's the way Joseph used it last week. But other times it uses the word idol to describe the, the figurine that has often been attached to those false gods, uh, the, the, the physical image. And so you might assume then, OK, if that's if that's the difference. So number number one is saying I'm not allowed any other gods. And number two is a particular emphasis on no figurines. Does that mean then, for example, that, that Hinduism is a worse sin than Islam? Uh, well, no, I think we're still not quite there. If, if uh, we, We're getting closer, but we're not quite there. It would be uh, a strange thing to, to assume that the Bible is drawing, drawing lines. Some, some false gods are worse than others because some have idols and some don't. Um, that's not what's going on with the second command. What's going on with the second command is he's talking about idols in the worship of the one true God. And so what you get is the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. And the second command is, when you worship the one true God, do not use any idols in your worship of him. And actually, although the NIV has used the word idol, um, the word really can mean a a graven image. And some of you might have that in your translations, depending on what you're using. Uh, It's it's a physical representation. Graven image could apply equally to a a statue or or a figurine as it could to even a picture. Or a drawing, for example. So that's the difference between the first two commandments. The first is have no other gods. And the second is when you worship the one true God, don't use a physical representation of him. 
Okay, so that's fairly clear what the commandment is talking about. But why, why has God demanded that we must not use a physical representation of him in our worship of him? Well, one answer is because of the inadequacy of an idol to represent God. And this is really one of the reasons I got us to read from Isaiah 40 earlier on in the service. In uh, Still in Exodus, we're going to Isaiah 40 in a moment, but still in Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. That kind of language, the heavens above, the earth beneath, the waters below, it, it's descriptive and gets you to think about the, the, the sum total of creation. Do not make God in the pattern of anything within this creation. Why? Well, the inference is easy now you've been brought, now your attention has been brought to this point. Because God is creator and everything that you are able to see and touch and feel and design is part of the creation. And the creation is not able to represent its creator. And that's what Isaiah 40 was, was going on about. So Isaiah 40 was asking questions like, who, who else measures the waters, that is all the waters of all the seas, who else measures those waters in the hollow of his hand? It's, it's, a, it's impossible. There, there is no being, there is no force, there is no energy, there is no body that is big enough to, to do that. God is far greater than anything within this creation. Uh, Isaiah 40 described God as being able to span the whole sky with the width of his hand. Um, he weighs the mountains on a scale. Isaiah asks, who was it that taught God knowledge? Not just taught him about things, but who was it who taught him what knowledge was? Who showed him the path of understanding? How do you learn? In fact, it was God who had those things, and it's God who is teaching us the path of knowledge. God who teaches us how to learn. Isaiah makes the point that if you brought all the trees of all the forests, he describes Lebanon, uh, well known for their uh, the cedars, the cedars of Lebanon, for example. You see them in Bradgate Park, huge, ginormous trees reaching up to the skies. If you brought all the wood from all the forests in all the world and piled them up into one big bonfire, you could not make a fire that was warm enough uh, to warm God up. Um, it is so far bigger than us. There's no point choosing your wood in order to design your little representation of God, Isaiah says. It was God who gave life to the wood itself that you're then plucking up and shaping uh, into your design. And there's not even any point worshipping those big things in the sky, the, the sun, the stars, the moon. The sky is God's tent. He, he, he wears it like a robe. The stars have been placed by his hand. And so even something as magnificent as a star or a galaxy can no more represent God than the polka dots on your shirt can represent you. God places those stars by hand in the sky. There is nothing within all of this creation that can adequately represent God. And that is true whatever sort of idol you think of or design. An idol necessarily is in one place. It is physical. It is visible. It is material. It is dead. It has been designed. It is, uh, in some, describable and containable. If you make an image, if you make a model, if you make a representation, it is all those things. But what is God like? God is not 
in one place. He is everywhere. God is not visible. He is invisible. God is not material. He is spirit. God is not dead. He is alive. God is not mute. He speaks. God has not been designed. He is the designer. He is not describable or containable. In the words of the the song, he is indescribable and uncontainable. And so even if you choose the very powerful things of creation, they, they fall so far short of being able to adequately represent God. You think of the power and the, the majesty of a, a lion, the king of his pride. And yet you think of how easily Samson, empowered by the spirit, ripped that animal to shreds. Even the most powerful things in this creation cannot represent God. And so if you were to make, try and make a, a depiction of God, if you're trying to represent him in any way, you just fall short. Your idol immediately is deficient. If you have a depiction of God that seeks to emphasize his power, the difficulty is how do you also emphasize his compassion or his mercy in that same model? It, it might ha- it might have hints towards one thing, but cannot fully encompass all that God is. And, and like, likewise, a, a depiction of God's compassion and care for his people risks ignoring his justice. You cannot fit the sum total of God into one model. You think also of how uh, depictions of God just fail or change quickly, actually. You think of the depiction of God in the Sistine Chapel in uh, in the Vatican. That's the, the famous picture where you've got God with his finger reaching out and, and Adam sort of leaning back and touching up to God like this. Uh, and as impressive as that painting and that depiction is of God, what has it become? Well, it's become the caricature that so many people use to now mock and deride God as the great big bearded man in the sky. And you could uh, think about how you can't even make a picture of Jesus Christ, who was physically a man without worrying to no end about what color, what shade you make his skin. Because as soon as you begin to add color to it, you you risk alienating some part of uh, the community or the society. Uh, an image of God is deficient. It cannot represent God. But you might question, is that really a reason to get rid of all images of God in our worship? After all, even in the Bible, doesn't God use personification or uh, a more technical word, zoomorphism? He applies uh, creaturely characteristics to his own person. So you think of how he describes himself as um, a, a shepherd caring for his sheep. You see that in Isaiah, actually Isaiah 40, a section that we didn't read. God is described as a mighty warrior. God is described as a rock. God is described as a strong tower. God is described as a consuming fire. And even at Sinai, when the Ten Commandments were given, God reveals himself as a fire. The cloud comes down and in the cloud, the fire comes down and it's from the fire that God's voice speaks out. So is it really um, so bad to use any sort of depiction of God? Well, what you've got to remember is that when the Bible is doing these things to describe God, it's God who's giving us the metaphor. It's not humans who are designing it to to say, this is what I think God must be like. I will apply this metaphor to him. God gives us the metaphor. Um, And also, when God gives us that metaphor, he's doing it to describe only a part of him. He's not claiming that this is the sum total of who he is. And when you've got an idol, it's never only representing a part of him. It's it's seeking to be a representation of God himself. An idol is forbidden because it is deficient. 
The Bible also, I think, says idols are forbidden because they are dangerous. Idols are dangerous. I think they're dangerous in two ways. One is because although an object or an image might first be intended as an aid to true worship, it's all too easy for that image to become the object of our worship. It might be intended to point us to God, to remind us of something about him. But it's all too easy for that image to become the object of our worship instead. Scripture is littered with examples. Uh, two examples. One is that of Gideon. Uh, Gideon is powerfully uh, moved by, by God to rescue Israel from the hands of Midian. And so great is his victory that the people of Israel say, Gideon, you've got to be our king. And Gideon says, no, no, God will be your king. And yet he takes some of the gold from each of the men uh, in the society and he makes uh, an ephod, a breastplate. Uh, part of the, part of the, um, one of the pieces that the temples would have used, uh, that the priests would have used in the temple or in the tabernacle at that time. And he uses it probably to encourage people to worship God in a, in a way that is closer to the biblical pattern that they had uh, when God led the people out of Egypt. And yet that ephod becomes a god, an idol to the people in Israel. It becomes a snare to them. It's intended as a help to remind them of the God who they serve and of the unity of the tribes. And yet in the end, it becomes uh, an idol. And similarly, the, the bronze snake that Moses had made, lifted up on the pole so that the people of Israel could, could look to it and be saved from the, uh, the poison of the snakes. In Hezekiah's day, that bronze snake had been given a name and people were uh, burning incense to it. The snake had become an idol and Hezekiah had to destroy it. You see a similar pattern today, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. You could think of how the Roman Catholic Church emphasizes the the, the relics that, you know, things like a, a thorn from the, the crown of uh, the crown of thorns or um, a piece of wood from the cross. Uh, they emphasize uh, the presence of crucifixes or, or statues in their churches. Uh, they use little beads to help you uh, pray. They have pilgrimages to the Holy Land. All these things are designed and intended to help the worshipper, to remind them of things that are true. And yet what do these things so easily become? They become like talismans or lucky charms the power lies in the thing itself the power lies in the beads that i must wear or that i must dangle in my car the power becomes in the crucifix that i must kneel before in order to pray the power is in the saint who i am reminded of to emulate the power is in the relic that i must go and touch and see and feel and so rather than being an aid to the worship of the true god they're trusting in some other power that is separate from God totally. And it's not just in the Roman Catholics uh, that you find these sorts of risks. There are risks for um, for us in popular media, for example. I remember once watching um, Bruce Almighty, the film, and for weeks, perhaps months afterwards, my prayers were to Morgan Freeman. Because Morgan Freeman in the film plays the character of God. And in my prayers, it's not as though I was expecting Morgan Freeman, the man, to answer my prayers. But in seeing the depiction, here is what here is who God is. It gets in your mind and you end up you end up praying to that depiction of God that you have seen rather than God as he reveals himself in his word. And I think far from, you know, uh, 1990s or early 2000s questionably uh, funny films that uh, 
that we that we ought not to be watching anyway. Um, a, a much more real risk is uh, in the materials that we use to teach our children. And there'll be a picture coming up on the screen in a minute, Dan. Um, but I, I want to speak uh, just to give a warning about some of the materials that you use when you teach your children. And the example I've got on the screen is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. OK, now I, I am in favour of the Jesus Storybook Bible. I think it's a fantastic book, a real help in getting children to understand what's going on. But imagine, for example, if we'd come in today and said, look, we're here to worship Jesus. Here is a picture of Jesus. Focus on this one. Uh, the Salvatore Mundi, uh, drawn by or uh, supposedly painted by uh, Leonardo da Vinci. OK, although recently they've wondered whether it was really him who painted. One of the most expensive paintings in the world. A depiction of Jesus. How would you feel if this evening I come in and said, look, I want you to focus your hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a picture of him to help you remember him. It, it would be blasphemy. And you would say to me, look, Seth, that is not what I want to meditate on. That is not how Christ is revealed to me. And even if Leonardo da Vinci has captured something in the look of this person that he's painted that that might be a help, even if I can see some some kind of compassion or care in the eyes of this painting, even if I'm reminded of the way he, he holds the globe in his hand, the way, he, the way he blesses his people, this is not the way God has instructed us to worship him. And so I don't want to use an image like that. What I want to use is his word as it is revealed. Now think about how you teach your children who Jesus is. Now, I think it's helpful to have depictions of stories. Uh, where the, the illustrations are showing the things that happened. And I've got no problem if Jesus is one of the characters in those depictions. But sometimes the illustrations that are used are like this. And I hope by putting them side by side, you can see what really I think is the intention of the artist in drawing an illustration like this. The intention is not so much to describe the action. The intention is to show you this is who Jesus is. This is this is what Jesus is like. And, and the emphasis is not so much on the things that are happening. The emphasis is on the look on his face and the kindly smile and the warmth, the warm reception that you might expect to receive from him. And if this is the only type of image that we are feeding our children when we teach them about Jesus, you can imagine how the child grows up thinking, oh, who is Jesus? How do I know what Jesus is like? Oh, well, the easiest way to remember him is I've got this picture in my mind's eye. And their, their understanding of who Jesus is can be so easily derived from images like this rather than it, um, instruction from God's word. Thanks, Dan. Let's take those images off the screen. And, and again, it's not that I would not use any illustration with, with a, a picture of Jesus. But I just think you've got to be careful about how you are presenting Jesus, how you are presenting God. Um, not making him uh, a, an image to design or to draw or to fix in your mind's eye, but to take him at his word as he has revealed himself to be. Um, uh, idols are dangerous because they can so easily become objects of worship. And a very related point to that is I, idols are dangerous because in the end they portray a false god for us to worship. In Exodus 20, the words say, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Don't bow down to these idols because I am jealous God. 
I value the covenant that I have made with my people. I want to preserve that. I value the honor that people give me in worship. And I don't want that honor and that glory to go to any other. Implied, even if you use an idol that is supposed to depict God, in fact, you are giving your glory, your worship to some other God rather than the one true God. And the best example of this is still in the book of Exodus, chapter 32, when you get the incident with the golden calf. And Aaron is saying, right, we're going to have a festival to the Lord. He uses the Lord's name. It's clear who they intend to worship. And yet in the very same breath, he's saying, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And God quite clearly condemns the action as idolatry. Although we might use a physical uh, representation in order to depict the one true God, actually it's leading us to worship some other, some false God. How likely is it that Christians today fall foul of this commandment? I've tried to show you some common ways, some common examples already that we might be tempted towards this sin. But there's another aspect to this command that we haven't touched on yet. I'll just read you one verse from Habakkuk. Rather than getting you all to turn to Habakkuk, it'd be quicker just to read this verse rather than all turn there. Habakkuk 2.18. He helpfully phrases the problem. Of what value is an idol? Since a man has carved it or what value is an image that teaches lies for he who makes it trusts in his own creation. The problem with an idol is that the person who makes it is in the end trusting, not in the God who it might supposed to be representing, but they're trusting in their own creation. And the question is, does an idol have to be a physical object? or a little drawing or image in order for us to fall foul of this problem? Well, I don't think it does. I think we can make a God of our own creation when we ignore God's revelation of himself in the scriptures. The danger for us in the church, and especially in our tradition, in in evangelical Christianity, the danger for us is not so much that we bow down to a statue or that we're going to use Pictures like I had on the screen earlier in our worship. That's not the danger. The the more likely danger is that we ignore perhaps just parts of the revelation of God or perhaps great chunks of God's revelation in order to design our own God. A, A God who perhaps treats sin less severely, who makes fewer demands on our lives, who prioritizes the causes that we most value. The danger for evangelical Christians is that they overemphasize certain aspects of God's character in favor of the traits that we deem most suitable. And so some might say, look, I don't want you to really talk about about sin. Uh, God is God is a loving God. Yeah, we know sin is a problem, but look, God's just so full of mercy uh, and he's going to he's going to brush over us. And he's not going to hold it, hold it to account. We're, We're free. We're safe. In Jesus Christ, we don't need to deal about sin. We need encouragement. We, we need to hear reminders of his love and his grace and his mercy. They silence great swathes of God's word in order to design a God who emphasizes the things that they want most. But then likewise, others might argue in, in the opposite vein. They ignore grace and they just want a preaching of, of condemnation and justice and the holiness of God, making strict demands on believers and unbelievers alike. Because God is severe, God is holy, God is other. And they ignore his grace 
and his mercy shown to us in the gospel. The danger is that we don't take God at his word, but we mix and match parts of his word to make a God of our own devising. Now, how do we guard against that? Well, finally, I want to end with the significance of Jesus Christ. How do we ensure that we take in a full view of who God is? And this is why we read from Hebrews 1 a little bit earlier. Um, God has spoken to us in various ways, but in these last days, he's revealed to him, us to him, he's revealed himself to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to know who God is, if we want a good picture of what God is like, we look to Jesus and we see the righteousness, the holiness, the goodness of God in the way Jesus deals with people, in the way he speaks, in the way he acts in the way he conducts himself, in the way he teaches. But most of all, we see God at the cross. Not just in the the actions of Jesus, not just in the miracles, not just in his compassion towards others, but particularly we see God revealed to us in the cross. And it's at the, the cross or the cross and the resurrection of Christ that we focus on if we're looking for God's revelation of himself to us through Jesus Christ. To show you why I think that, you, it'd be helpful if you turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The question is, what sort of light is Jesus? What what is he revealing to us? We've had a hint already in John's gospel. In the in the opening verses, John says, no one has ever seen the father. But God, the one and only who's at the father's side, has made him known. That's a hint that John has given us already, alongside many others, of what this light is. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't use the, the term light in the rest of this discussion. But instead of talking about light, he now talks about revealing the father to us. Verse 14, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you've got no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the father who sent me. In your own law, it's written uh, that uh, it's written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies myself. The other witness is the father who sent me. Um, so he's talking here about the father witnessing to himself. Then he, he, he sort of switches it. It's not the father testifying for Christ. Verse 19, he says, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So it's not just that the father testifies for Jesus, but now also Jesus is revealing the father. When are they going to see this revelation of the father? Verse 27 They didn't understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Jesus, as the light of the world, is revealing the father to us. He's showing us what God is like. And he tells the Jews, you will see this most clearly at the moment when the son of man is lifted up. He speaks of his death and his subsequent resurrection. 
You see, when we look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see the fullness of God's character. You don't get half a picture like so many other depictions of God often are. You get both his justice and his mercy. You get both his anger at sin and yet his grace poured out for sinners. You see, when you think about what's going on at the cross, all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, uh, pouring out his wrath upon the Son, who takes upon the sin of the world upon himself, the Spirit raising Jesus Christ back to life, and then the Spirit being sent out from Jesus to his believers. You see the fullness of God's plan of redemption, not some half-hearted uh, prosperity gospel idea of redemption or salvation, but really what God is doing. Why has he sent his son? What, it, what does it mean to be saved? You see that clearly when you look at the cross. You see judgment of sin. You see the nature of salvation. You see our need for forgiveness. There's no design in a God here who can wink at sin or brush it under the carpet. God is not doing that when you look at the cross. When we look at the cross, we see Jesus showing us the Father. That's how God has revealed himself to us. And so if we want to avoid falling into the trap of making an idol of a God who, for example, is complacent towards our sin, who ignores it, who, who thinks it's not very severe, we look at the cross and we see the severity of the way God treats sin. If we want to avoid making an idol of a God who is unforgiving and harsh and strict with us and binds us with rules, we look again at the cross and see that all of our wrongdoing has been laid upon Jesus Christ. If we want to avoid making an idol of a God who favours one group over another, who follows our racist or or, or, um, prejudiced tendencies, then we look again at the cross and see that one man died for all. So that all might be free. If we want to avoid making an idol of of a God who promises wealth as a salvation, we look again at the cross and the resurrection and we see the salvation that God is really offering. New life in Christ Jesus. If we want to avoid making an idol of a God who lacks power, who lacks foreknowledge, who lacks real sovereignty or control in the situation. We look again at the cross and see a situation where man was able to act act out his own sinful desires in freedom and yet complete the plan that God had written down for millennia beforehand and had had planned even before the foundation of the world. God does not lack knowledge or sovereignty. He is not passive in history. If you want to avoid making a God who is disconnected from your suffering, look again at the cross and see a God who endured the depths of suffering for your sake. If you want to avoid making an idol of a God who might, for example, say that suffering is the last thing he wants for your life. Look again at the cross and see that suffering was the path towards glory, even for the son of God. The significance of Christ in obeying this commandment is that we look to him. We look especially to his death and to his resurrection in order to realize who God really is and what it really means to worship him and follow him. We avoid making idols, which are really just gods in our own image.